And as we get into God's word, let's, uh, let's just stop and pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you for the incredible opportunity to come uh, to you, to your word that's living, Lord. You said, Jesus, that heaven and earth will pass away before one iota, one period drops, one dot from your word. And so, Lord, I thank you that we're, as, we, as we open our Bibles this morning, we're, we're handling something that's eternal, it's living. And God, we just invite uh, you by your spirit to speak to our hearts this morning. Give us ears that hear, I pray. Give us eyes that see. Lord, I just pray right now in this moment that the soil of our hearts would just turn over and that you'd find soft ground for the seed of your word. And so Lord, come and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're jumping back into this uh, conversation with Paul uh, through the book of Romans. And I guess we've, we've come to this great section, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And as we're working through it, last Sunday we were in chapter 6. I, uh, we're going to do all of chapter 7 this morning, but that won't be the case when we get to chapter 8. But I guess... Really, when you get to Romans 6, 7, and 8, I would say this, that there are certain assumptions that just have to be put in place. Some groundwork has to be done for us to get the principles in terms of what Paul is teaching and if we're going to understand that. And the first principle is this. I guess it's been this drum that I've been pounding, okay? That salvation is a process, that, that salvation, as we've seen in Romans, is really a process. And we tend to think of salvation as an event. But really it's a journey, not a destination. We're talking about a walk with a living God. Salvation is about learning to walk with Jesus and walk in relationship with him. And when you talk about walking with Jesus, I guess the important thing to consider is this, is that that. Pressing on is as important as starting the journey. Starting the journey was super important. But pressing on with Jesus matters just as much. And you know the New Testament Christians, it's interesting that when we read about them in, in the book of Acts, they were referred to as followers of the way. It was like there was a way about their life. They were walking a path. They were walking a road. They were on a journey. Paul Bunyan called it a a pilgrim's progress. They were learning to walk with Jesus. And like any journey, there is a beginning and there is a middle and there is an end. That's kind of like the story of our lives, right? We think, well, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. But it's interesting. In, In Hebrew narrative, in Hebrew storytelling It doesn't follow that kind of thinking that we have as a a beginning and a middle and an end. A Hebrew story always goes like this. A beginning, a middle, and a beginning. And I love that. I love that thought because in a walk with Jesus, there's a beginning. Paul has told us all about this. He speaks of our justification, that we're justified where we meet Jesus in repentance at the cross and he forgives us. And we are made, we are justified, we are made as though we had never sinned. We are freed from the penalty of sin. That is the beginning. But there's a middle to the whole story in the walk with Jesus. And that's where lots of us are, you know. That's where we show up at church a lot of the time. We're, we're in that 
middle part of the, the journey. And we spend, you know, a huge chunk of our time with Jesus in, in this middle part of the journey. And that process is called sanctification. It's a life walk where we are, where we, we are set free from the power of sin. And, and we learn by the power of the resurrection to reign in life as we walk with Jesus. And then there's not an end. There's a beginning. You know, I, I don't want to always reference things like these, but I'm thinking about Murray. I'm like, Murray is on the steps of a beginning. He's actually on the steps of, of a beginning, the goal of the journey when we are glorified and we are set free from the presence of sin. And that's the ultimate goal of our salvation, to be, to be with Jesus. And so, you know, it's interesting just when we think of our kind of Western way of doing church or our Western theology, we've really reduced salvation to an event. Think about it. You know, it's like the Billy Graham crusade, which is awesome. I'm not slamming those things. The harvest crusades with Greg Glory, not slamming anything like that at all. But we often think one and done, man, one and done. And we lose the New Testament thrust that pressing on with Jesus is as important as starting the journey. It's like the adventure just begins when you step over that threshold. And so we've said this many times over the last number of weeks. I've been saved past. I'm being saved present. And I'm going to be saved. That is the future of a relationship with Jesus. Now, if salvation for you is just a past event, then you need to know this. There's much more to this journey than a one and done experience with Jesus. And when you understand that, it, it begins to make a, a huge change in your process and in your thinking about your, in relationship to your regards, to, um, with, in your relationship with Jesus and how you think about that. It's like, I'm learning to walk with this person. We're learning to have relationship together. You know, I think about uh, what the scripture tells us about Enoch. Remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. That's not an end. That's a beginning. Enoch walked with God and God said, man, your place is too far. Come home to my place this time. And however, however that went, one day in eternity we'll find out. But Enoch walked with God. That's the story of a man who had a beginning and he had a middle and he had a beginning with the Lord. And so here's the important thing about this is, is this. And I guess this is important enough that I would say let this be clear this morning. That this thing about salvation is this. The way, the journey, the walk with Jesus, it can be slowed up. It can come to a halt. We can start moving backwards in that relationship with Jesus. We often in the church, we call it backsliding. A lot of times, really, it's, it's back walking or something like that. I don't know. We're never standing still. You know, you think about that walk with Jesus. Well, Paul Bunyan, he said this, and I love this from the Pilgrim's Progress. He said in this, In my dream, I saw that there is a road to hell even at the gates of heaven. Me and the boys, a few years back, we just, in the evenings, we would read Pilgrim's Progress together, and I didn't ever quite finish it with them, and I always kicked myself. And that's at the end of the book that Paul Bunyan says this. In, in my dream, I saw that there was a road to hell even at 
the gates of heaven. And the warning of the story was this, is that you're on this journey. You're on this walk with Jesus and there are many dangers along the path and you can, you can meet dangers right at the gates of, of heaven. And he warned of the potential to fall from grace. And so as we're going to see here, I guess, what we're going to see is this, is that this walk with Jesus is a war. That's what we're going to see in in Romans chapter 7, that there are forces pulling at you, that the spirit is pulling you towards Jesus, the flesh is pulling you towards sin, and it's a struggle. Paul said you've got to learn in your new attitude of your heart and mind to offer yourselves as an instrument to righteousness. And we all know that sometimes we offer ourselves in slavery to unrighteousness, and other times I offer myself as an instrument to him, to the Lord, and as an instrument of righteousness. And so within us, there's this, there's this war as we learn to walk with Jesus, a, a war of the flesh and the spirit. It's a civil war. And we must press on until the next beginning, the redemption of our bodies. And so here you and I are, we're on our way, we're walking with Jesus, learning to walk the narrow path with Jesus. And Paul, as he begins to talk about this, he, he, was, he was looking you know what I love about Paul? He wasn't looking back to an event of the past. Whenever you read Paul, he's always looking forward. He, he tells us about his salvation. He tells us about his testimony. But Paul was a man who fixed his eyes on the finish line and the prize that awaited him there. He wasn't living in the past. He was looking to the future. He had fixed his eyes on Jesus. And so the New Testament, I would say, as we begin to dive into this, isn't, isn't, a collection of books that congratulate you for having started. You break out of the gate. That's not what the New Testament is about. It's not congratulating you for having started. You can be pleased that you've been started, but there are many more steps in a walk with Jesus, and it's about getting to the finish line. The human tendency, the fleshly tendency, is really when we begin to backwalk is to step into two different things. We can go one of two different ways. And last week we looked at the first one. That was this, license to sin, I called it. The tendency towards license. Now Paul's going to talk about the tendency towards legalism. That's the other side. The tendency is on one hand to slide into legalism or on the other hand to let grace become a license to sin. And I mentioned to you that when we look around the culture of of churches, we, we see this all over the place. There's, there's license to sin or there's legalism to the law. And in Romans 6, Paul addressed the Gentiles and he said this, you have this tendency to go back to the practices that, that you had in your life earlier before you started following Jesus. That's the tendency towards license. And now here in chapter 7, he's going to speak to the Jews. And he's going to say, your tendency is this. Your tendency is to go back to, towards legalism. Because for them, for the, for the Jewish people before Jesus, the law had been the center of their thinking. And, and they were, had this tendency to go back and try to get right with God and begin to put the law back in place. And so really the message from Romans 6 and Romans 7 is the same message. It's just two different problems. One is a problem with license to sin and the other is legalism to the law. And so to the Gentiles who, who tended to turn grace into a license to sin 
And to the Jews who tended to turn grace into reason for legalism, the message is the same. Paul says this, never go back to that stuff. Don't go back to those old patterns of life. You've started on a journey. So look with me at verse one. He says this, or do you not know brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's speaking to Jews that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, when we were checking out Romans 6 last week, the Apostle Paul was teaching to the fact that the power of sin had been broken in our lives. And he was saying, you need to make an adjustment in your thinking in regards to sin. And I pointed out to you three things that Paul said you have to know about sin. They were this. Know that you're dead to sin. Know that you're freed from the power of sin. And know that you are alive to God. And so he said, in light of those things, you need to offer yourself to the Lord. Don't offer yourself to sin. Offer yourself to the Lord. But now as we flip to Romans chapter 7, he's going to tell us this. Not only do you have a new relationship with sin, because you're dead to it, you also have a new relationship to God's law. We're going to find out that we're dead to that too. Dead to the sin. Dead to sin and dead to the law. And so, I mean, the question really for the Jewish person and often for us, even as Christians, is this. Well, how do we relate to the Old Testament laws? How, how do we relate to God's law and the Mosaic teachings? And so, Paul changes this focus of his address towards the Jew. He's speaking to those who knew the law. And I would say this, it's one thing to know the truth about our relationship with sin. Romans chapter 6, it's a hard thing to work that out sometimes. And he's going to tell us it's the same thing with the law. Sometimes it's hard to work that out. And so that's why Paul in verse 1 refers to his audience here as brothers. He's referring to a Jewish audience because specifically, they were the ones who had related to God on the basis of law. But now because of their relationship with Jesus, they were dead to sin, which gave them a new relationship to sin, and we're going to find out here too, that it also gave them a new relationship to God's law. And so he gives us an example, and he uses the picture of marriage. Let's check it out. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, I guess this is just a nice chance for me to plug and say, hey, we're talking on marriage on Wednesday night. You should come join us, okay? Now, although Paul here in, in Romans 7 is using marriage as an example, I would say this. He's not giving marriage advice here. Paul is making a comparison for us. So this isn't a teaching about divorce and about remarriage or about adultery. Paul is illustrating something with the principle. And so we need to catch the principle. And the principle is this. According to Old Testament law, this is how it worked. A husband could divorce his wife. If she did something, whatever, I don't know, whatever the situation is, he could divorce her. But Old Testament law stated this, that a wife could never divorce her husband. 
It's kind of unfair. Like I read that and I think that's unfair. What? He could divorce her, but she never had the right to divorce him. And Paul uses us this example to show us our relationship uh, to the law. It's like marriage for that woman. Okay? It's like there's no way out. There's, there's no way out of that relationship. There's, there's no way for a woman, according to Old Testament law, to get out of a marriage with that man. Unless he kicks a bucket. If he kicks a bucket, if he dies, then she's released. So when I think about this, when I read that Old Testament law, I always think, man, that's not fair. Like, don't you think that? I think, man, I don't understand that. It doesn't seem fair to women, and, and it's not. But the point of that law is to teach us a principle that's application comes in the New Testament. And it translates for you and I. Remember, if a husband died, the wife was released from the marriage relationship, and she had freedom to remarry. And the principle in the picture is this. If only the law would die. If only the law would die, I would be released from relationship with the law. But here's the thing about the law. Here's the thing about this book. It's eternal. The law has come down from heaven. It was delivered unto Moses on top of that mountain. The, the, the law is from God. The law is God's word. And we know that, that when God speaks about his word, he always emphasizes the eternal, enduring nature of his word. Like Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So here's the thing. Here's the problem. Here's the standoff. So just like the Old Testament law made, a, made no provision for a woman to, to divorce her husband, so God has made no provision for anyone to divorce themselves from the law. Does that make sense? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, you know, there might be some ladies here, the odd wife just hoping their husband would kick the bucket and, you know, they'd be released <laughs> so that they could get out of that marriage. But here's the thing. This is one covenant relationship between the Lord and his creation that will never pass away. That's the problem. His word endures forever. And so I can't divorce myself from this. So now we have a problem. And so Paul is going to tell us something amazing. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. That's so awesome, I have to read it again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Here's the amazing thing. This didn't die. But I did. That's what Paul's telling us. 
Remember this whole discussion we've been having about being in Jesus. In Jesus, as in Adam, so all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. When Adam sinned in the garden, I was in him. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, if all have a relationship with him, I will be in Jesus. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, I was nailed there with him. And so Paul tells us this. The law never died, Jewish brothers. But if you came to Jesus, you did. You did. You've been set free from the law. You've become dead to the law. Not because the law disappeared. The law has not disappeared. And you know, when you think about the function of the law, right? Like you just stop and say, well, what is the function of the law? Well, we know this. The scripture tells us all over the place. The law functions to show us our shortcomings. It, it, it functions to show us that we fall short of God's glory. The law functions to, to reveal to us that we are sinners in, in need of a Savior. And the Savior is Jesus. But because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, I have both a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with the law. Because, and I would say this, because, you know, we follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, that is extremely significant in regards to our relationship with the law. I was thinking about this. Remember we had this conversation about baptism last week? I was thinking, man, you know, I've already had my funeral. My funeral happened in 1996. It's on School Hill, up at CLA actually, the church I grew up in. And on that day, I was buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And on that day, I was reconciled to God by the death of his son and I was raised to life by the power of the resurrection. I, I, my relationship to the law ended and I began to learn what it meant to, to walk with Jesus, reconciled to God by the death of Jesus and then as Paul's told us, then learning that how much more shall I be saved by his life? By walking with him. And so Paul told us in Romans 6, you have a new relationship with sin. Know that you're dead to it. Know that you're free from it. Know that you're, you're alive on, unto God. And because we have a new relationship with sin, he tells us now you also have a new relationship with the law. The law didn't disappear. There was no divorce. Not one, of li not one line of God's word has been removed, but there was a death you were crucified with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. And now we have a, a new relationship with the law because we're dead to sin and we're alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We're in Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us that because of our death relationship, because of our death, the relationship with the law has been rendered null and void. He says this, that to him who was raised from the dead in order that we would bear fruit unto God. You know, whenever a follower of Jesus can come to this realization that, that they can throw off sin and they can throw off legalism from this life and realize that essentially they've been married to Jesus, they've been made alive unto God, they can, they can walk with Jesus, Paul tells us th the result is this, your life will produce fruit for the kingdom. He says that right at the end of verse 4. So check out verse 5. He says this. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear, the fr to bear fruit for death. You know, what was the fruit of our lives when we were controlled by sin and the law let us know that we were controlled by sin? We were judged by the law. The fruit was death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But look at verse 6. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. When we get to Romans chapter 8, we're going we're gonna to get to preach on, and learn on the new way of the Spirit. I call this just the life of liberty, the life of freedom. We've been released from the law. We have died to that which one once bound us and now we can serve God in a new way through the life of the Holy Spirit. This new way of the Spirit, that's the, that's the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. Remember under the old covenant that God established with his people Israel, he wrote his law on a stone tablet and he gave it to Moses. It was presented to him. And Moses in turn taught the people. But Jeremiah spoke of a time as the, as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. And Jeremiah said this. I want to read it to you. It's from Jeremiah 31. He said this. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. You know what Paul's telling us is this. When we, can, when we read what Jeremiah is saying, it, it, it really amounts to this, that every day is meant to be an adventure with Jesus. Every single day. Because God has written his word on our hearts. He's forgiven our sin. He's given to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And each and every day we can spend time with Jesus. We can have our quiet time. We can be in the word. We can experience the reality of his peace and his presence. He goes with us to work and we can spend time praying. He comes and changes the atmosphere of our home and we can led, be led in all things by the Holy Spirit who lives with us. What's Paul saying? Man, every day with the Lord is new. That's why we say the Lord's mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. As great is your faithfulness. And I think, you know, when I think about that, I think that's what a relationship with Jesus is supposed to be. It's supposed to be freedom, right? And the danger is, is we go back to sin or we go back to legalism. And Paul wants us to know, oh, Jesus is calling you to a life of liberty, of freedom. But the default of human heart is, and the Jews were prone to this, is religion, legalism. And instead of experiencing a life of liberty and freedom, man, 
Just people have this tendency to construct systems of religion and rules and legalism. We place them upon ourselves and we place them upon other people and we set them up in our churches. And what Paul is telling us is it's not supposed to be that way. He said, never. Don't let it be that with Jesus. We are to experience the new way of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. Our, our faith in Jesus is not some intellectual staircase that we ascend and hold to a system of doctrines. Ultimately, I would tell you this. The Bible teaches one doctrine. If I was to tell you this, the Bible teaches ultimately one doctrine, and the doctrine is this. Jesus. It teaches not a doctrine. It teaches a person. To walk with Jesus. And we can experience him. And we can experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm saying, I guess, is this. Is that the Lord does not want you just to know about him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to know him personally. He wants you to know that you can be known personally. It's a beautiful thing, what Paul's telling us. There's been a divorce. Or sorry, there's been a death. And you've been set free from the old relationship. And now you can be attached to a new one, married to a new one, Jesus. And so as Paul goes on here, we'll, we'll go over the second kind of half of this chapter a little faster, but, but Paul writes about life under the law and his struggles. And, and he talks in the, in the past tense, really in verse 7 to 13, he's, he's speaking in the past tense. He's talking about life before Jesus. And then when he continues to talk about the struggle that exists for him, and from verse 14 following, he's describing life after Jesus, and he's describing to us the civil war that he finds going on within himself as he, as he wrestles to live for the things of the Spirit. It's a pretty cool text because it's like, we all, we'll, we'll read it, you, you'll love it. It's really, it's personal as he describes what's going on in his heart. He, he's he's going to say, I, I delight in God's law and my, my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, there's this, there's this war going on and he's just describing this, this tension that we find ourselves in as we seek to follow Jesus. So let's check it out, verse seven. He says this. What then shall we say? Remember, the, the relationship with the law is broken. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if... Sorry, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. So the natural question in response to all that Paul was saying was then to ask this question, well then what's the purpose of the law? What's it about? Now that the relationship is in it, is the law sin to me? And that question, that question was in particular importance to the Jew because they were seeking to keep the Mosaic law. That was their claim to, to righteousness. But Paul tells us this. The law reveals sin. The law is like that, that mirror that reveals the inner man and it shows us how dirty we are. And he, and he picks one of the Ten Commandments. He grabs the very the last one that he references and he says this. The law says you should not covet. Now all of the commandments, if you kind of cruise through all of the commandments, 
they are all they all speak in regards to outward actions except this last commandment you know it's like you should not commit adultery that's an outward action you should not worship other gods before me i mean in that culture that's an outward action go down bow before other idols and things but this commandment thou shalt not covet deals with an inward attitude and and coveting is this this inward attitude that eventually leads towards an, an outward action. It leads you to that place where you begin to break the other commandments. And so it's, a, it's an interesting one that he's, he's picked. And it's a good one because there's none of us who don't covet. We all covet. And so he says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead so the law arouses sin it wakes it up you know there's just something about the human heart that when you place rules on the human heart the human heart wants to rebel i'm like the guy i drive my wife crazy because like oh it says no trespassing that's an invitation for me it's like i'm going to check that out look at that no trespassing i wonder what's down that path and then my wife's like, what are you doing? You know, I'm like, oh, no beach fires? What are you talking about? Don't tell me no beach fires. I'm having a beach fire, okay? Whatever it is. You know, I don't know how many times a day I give my kids, especially I just think back to when they were little, you know, some sort of instruction, some sort of law. And they go immediately and they do the thing I told them not to do, you know? It's like, I got one who's had a habit of like wiping his face when he's eating. I won't tell you which one on his shirt. And I'm like, don't wipe your face on your shirt. And he goes like this. I'm like, what the heck, man? It's like, I just like, it just left my lips. And you know how that is. You know, maybe it's like, don't touch that. You know, don't hit your sibling. Close your mouth when you chew your food. You know, we don't use that word in our house, whatever it is. Okay. And it's like, why are children like that? You know, children, why are they like that? Because human beings are like that. Because you're like that as an adult. And, and, and Paul is actually going to tell us when we get to Romans 8 that the, the, the sinful mind is hostile towards God. It's like, don't tell me don't. You say, don't covet? Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. And we all know that the more you try and lay rules on people, the more they rebel. And God's law is no different. You read the Ten Commandments and they say things like, you shall not murder. And I think, well, I don't want to murder anybody except the one neighbor. So like that doesn't count. And then there's that other one, you know. And then I'm like, oh yeah, right, that one too. Okay, so, you know, you know, whatever it is. You shall not commit adultery. Well, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm just going to think about committing adultery. Or it's like, you shall not steal. It's like, well, I don't steal. Well, I might have taken that from work, but... You know, that was okay. That's like within the context of okay to take those things from work. Or, or whatever it is. You shall have no other gods before me. I, and, and you say to yourself, well, I don't bow to other gods, but I haven't had a quiet time with the Lord all week. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, well, then what are you bowing down to? The law arouses sin. It wakes it up. And so Paul says this in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's interesting because he's telling us this. Sin will make you die, 
or you will die in Jesus. Either way, you die. Better to die in Jesus. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Look at what's Paul describing here? He's describing for you a bad marriage. That's what he's describing. An unhealthy marriage. Verse 13, where there's no way out. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me, though it was good, through, through what was good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment uh, might become, sorry, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh sold under sin. And so at verse 14, he, he begins to describe this battle that's going on for him as a follower of Jesus between his flesh and the things of the spirit. His mind's changed. He's now, because what happens is this. It's like when you don't know Jesus, you hate the Ten Commandments, man. You're like, don't tell me don't. But then when you know Jesus, he says this. Your mind changes. You say, okay, I understand God. That's your law. I get it. I can deal with that. My problem is, I just can't live it out. And so now he begins to talk to us about this, this, this battle that the change of mind has happened. You want to do what the Spirit wants, but there's just times that come when it's like, I can't seem to help stop, stop myself from doing evil. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he tells us that it's possible, actually, to be born again, to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ and yet still to be ruled by your flesh, to be carnal in, in your nature. And, and Paul says that's infancy. That's, what's, that's how spiritual infants live, to be carnal and, and, and fleshly. And we can live by the Spirit, but we also know this, it's really easy to just let our lives be ruled by the flesh. And not even Paul was beyond that. And so he speaks of his fleshly carnal man. And he says, I, I'm unspiritual. I, I'm, a, I'm a slave to sin. The, the fleshly carnal man can, man can just appear to be righteous. You know, he can show up here at church and we all know it. We just put on the act, do the jig, the Christian jig, you know. Put on the show. But on the inside, internally, Man, the flesh can be raging. It can be ruling. It can be sitting on the throne and it just makes us miserable and robs us of, of peace. And, and it's like frustrating because you're like, man, on the outside, I want to live for Jesus. And there's this civil war going on and I'm like messing up right now and it's really hard. It's like, God, how's this all going to play out? And so even Paul tells us he can't, he can't live up to the rules and regulations. He can't live up to the expectation that he's putting upon himself. And so he, uh, he understood this. He had been born again and yet he knew the frustration of not being able to, you know, just walk with Jesus and the ideal of what we all want it to be. So look at verse 15. He says this, For I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like that in your walk with Jesus? Like, what the heck? Why did that just come out of me? Where'd that come from? You know, have you ever, you know, I just think about like, have you ever started the pan of Rice Krispie Squares? I'm like, you know, I'll just have one of those. And then you eat the whole pan. You guys don't do that, eh? That's just me. It's like, you know, kids get up in the morning like, where are the Rice Krispie Squares? I'm like, I don't know. That's weird. Where did those go? And, and then later that night, you think, why did I do that? My guts, okay? Whatever it is, the Rice Krispie Squares come back. And Paul's saying that. He's like, man, I didn't want to do that. Now I'm like paying the price for something I didn't want to do. I, like, I can't control myself. Look at verse 16. He says this. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so what Paul is saying is this. The problem is not with the law. The problem's with me. He's saying I'm the problem. The problem is sin and the flesh within me. He goes on to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Look at it. I mean, we ask this question all the time. It's like, there's good in me, right? There's good, there's good in me. I'm good. Paul says, no. I'm not good. I have discovered that in my flesh there is nothing good. I know that nothing good lives in me. Now, human beings, we just hate to hear this. We hate to hear this. Your flesh and your unspiritual mind are probably puffing up right now. Don't tell me there's nothing good in me. There's a little bit of good in me. And, and he's saying, no, no good lives in me. And we could say, well, speak for yourself, Paul. Speak for other people in the room. Don't talk about me. There's some good in me. But the scripture says, no. In your flesh, there is no good. I mean, I just ask you this. Do you ever just feel disappointed with yourself? You know, with your thoughts? You go, man, I wish, why didn't I jump all over to that opportunity to share the gospel the Lord just presented me with? You know, I was on the ferry last night. I felt, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I felt prompted by the Spirit to pray for someone. I had been having, I met them on the ferry on the way across. And then I met them on the ferry on the way back. And they had a physical issue going on. And I felt prompted by the Spirit to pray for them. And I went down to my car and I read. And I was just like, I'm, I like had to repent before the Lord. I, I felt the Spirit leading me to do something. And my flesh said, no, I'll look like an idiot. I'm not going to do that. The heart's deceitful. And in a sense, you know, it's really easy to quote Jeremiah 17, 9 and just say, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And it's really easy to believe that about other people's, but it's hard to grasp and say, no, that's my heart. And often Christians who are frustrated, like if you're fr a frustrated Christian, listen to this. Often Christians who are frustrated, they're frustrated maybe with themselves they're frustrated in life or they're frustrated at the church or they're frustrated with, with other believers is because there, there is something in themselves that, that says, I'm, I'm good and these people are good and they're failing to utilize it. They're not living up, you know. I'm not, you know, and we get mad at people because we ourselves are not living up to the image that we envision of ourselves. 
And you know, you will find it incredibly freeing and incredibly liberating when you finally understand there is no good in me apart from what the Spirit of God does. And that truth is not a slight against you. That's not, that's not a slight against you. That's meant to free you to rely on the Spirit of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. You know, whenever I read that, it reminds me of my first car. <laughs> Porsche 911. Totally underperformed. And uh, I tried everything. Took the car here, took the car there, changed the exhaust, did this, did that. And, you know, upgraded the tires, tried talked to this person, totally, you know, tried everything that I could to make that car perform, learned all about Porsche 911s, and then I had to admit I was driving a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and Paul is saying this, I can't figure out how to get the right performance out of my Christian life, man. It's like, I thought this baby was a Porsche. And every time I look in the mirror, I see a 1980 Toyota Corolla with a bad paint job. Now look at verse 20. That's what he's saying. Now if I do not, if I do, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies, evil lies close at hand. At hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's saying this. I wanted to follow God. In, in my thoughts, in my desires, in my determination, of, in the determination of my mind, I, wa I wanted to follow Jesus but my body rebels against me. It's like my eyes go and they lust. My tongue goes and it gossips. Man, my ears strain to hear the latest garbage that's coming out or the latest gossip around town or the latest gossip amongst the people of God. And I love this about Paul because we can relate to him. It's like, yeah, I'm exactly the same, Paul. Every one of us, we're, we're all the same. There's this civil war within. And so the question is really this. If I'm dead to the law, okay, I'm dead to sin, and my victory comes by offering myself to Jesus as an instrument of righteousness. If I'm dead to the law, then how does the victory come? How does the victory come? How do we win? Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And before I give you the answer, let me remind you, God's law will kill you. The wages of sin is death. Even as a follower of Jesus, someone who's put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you, you fight this internal battle. And so I love what Paul says. He makes a confession. I am a wretched man. And then he says this, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. His question is this, 
how do I overcome? How can I have victory? Or, or I would say we ask that question, actually. Paul asks a different question. I'm going to point it out in a minute. We say, how can I overcome? How can I have victory? And, and I, I just like the thought that when you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. How can I get victory? The question never begins with how. Look at Paul's question. His question begins with who. Who? Look with, look with me again at verse, 20, or verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Paul knew the right question. The right question is not how. The right question is who. And many Christians get all worked up about the how. You know, we turn the church into a how teaching all the time. And the flesh and the carnal man is the man who says how. The spiritual man does not say how. The spiritual man asks who. Who will deliver me? And the spiritual man finds the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus. Who will rescue us? Who will rescue me? Who will rescue us from the civil war within? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. And so reach out and take hold of the hand of Jesus. And when you take hold of the hand of Jesus, you discover what he can do. You, you discover like Enoch, who walked and was no more. See, through Jesus Christ our Lord, God has provided a way out. And we've seen, I don't have to be overcome by things any longer. In Jesus, there can be freedom. So learn to walk with him. Doesn't mean there isn't stumbles. Doesn't mean there isn't falls. But it means we can walk with him. God's grace, it's not a license to sin. It's an opportunity to offer yourself as an instrument to Jesus. Legalism, his grace is not an opportunity for legalism. His it's an opportunity to learn to walk with Jesus. And so I just encourage you this week, Say, just Jesus, my question is who? <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to look to you. I want to walk with you. I want to grow in this relationship, Lord. I, I want less of me and more of you. Would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. You know, I, I guess the thing about walking with Jesus is this, is that there's a starting point. And we celebrate the starting point. We're thankful for the starting point. For those of you that have crossed the, starting, the start line, man, just say, Lord, I'm just thankful for the process you're doing in me. I want to learn in this process. But for some here, that you haven't even reached the, the starting point. And, 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 and there is a line that has to be crossed where you, where, you, where you step up to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I, I see what you did in the cross. And, and I see because, because of who you are and what you've done for me, that you died on the cross, that I can be reconciled to God. And because you were raised to life, I can have new life in you. And so Jesus, this morning, you know, maybe this is you. You just want to come to the starting line. I just want to encourage you, come to the starting line 
if you don't know Jesus and you just simply pray to him this morning, Jesus, I'm here at the starting line. I'm, I, don't, I maybe don't even know what it means, but I'm here at the starting line and I, I, and I want to enter into this relationship with you. Would you help me do that? And he will help you.